A quick warning to our listeners, this series contains discussions of sensitive topics, including trauma. Please take care when listening. Kids come from hard places. It's a reality even if it's not easy to accept. During their childhood, when they're supposed to be having fun, making friends, learning new things, some children and teens are facing abuse and neglect. They may live in fear. They may have to fend for themselves. They may not know where their next meal is coming from. Many of these youth find themselves in the foster care system, searching for safety and healing. In this podcast, we want to take a closer look at trauma and attachment, the results of living your early life in hard places. We want to explore how widespread trauma and attachment challenges are and how they can affect children and adults inside and outside the child welfare system. We want to hear from parents who are seeing trauma and attachment challenges play out every day in their homes. We want to learn from these parents who are navigating the needs of their children, committed to changing their lives for the better. This is Unsettled from Hard Places, a multi-part podcast from DePaul Community Resources. I'm Allison Wickline-Burns, host and producer of this podcast. In this episode, we are talking trauma. I'm joined by Decca Knight, a licensed professional counselor and certified trauma specialist, Tiffany Martin, a foster care supervisor at DePaul, and Christopher Roberts, who leads youth and gang violence prevention efforts. Here's Decca to start with a description of trauma. Essentially for me, trauma is uh, you know a series of events or an event uh, where there's an overwhelming lack of control. And there's a lot of fear um, and overwhelming emotions and feelings. And that can happen with one incident. It could be a car wreck. It could be a house fire. It could be a natural disaster or it's something that could happen repeatedly in your family. Um, And that's when we talk about that relational developmental kind of complex trauma. If it's happening with physical abuse, emotional abuse, physical, emotional neglect, uh, a parent who has a mental health issue, a parent who has a substance use issue. Um, All of those things are considered uh, what we call adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. And so quite often when you hear uh, trauma discussed, we also discuss ACEs kind of at the same time. Trauma can come in a lot of different forms. And the thing that I always tell people when we're doing trainings is that trauma is in the eyes of the beholder. Um, And what I mean by that is we cannot label trauma for somebody else. We begin eventually to just believe that these individuals are flawed or that they're difficult instead of asking ourselves, um, what have they been through? And so I I really think that trauma is kind of like a a silent epidemic, uh, not only in our nation, but throughout the world. And what I mean by silent is that when we are interacting with other people in our day-to-day life as adults, for instance, we have no idea what our coworkers have been through. We have no idea what our neighbors have been through. Um, And nine times out of 10, they're not going to tell us. And so we just see the result of that trauma in their behaviors and their relationship style, how they interact with us. Um, And so quite often we miss the mark 
um, because again, we're labeling them or making an assumption that's not um, coming from an empathetic place or a compassionate place that they may have been through something tough. Trauma affects your body and your behavior. A lot of us learned about fight, flight, or freeze in biology, right? Uh, But we've added a couple of other terms to that as well. So now we say fight, flight, freeze, lock, bond. Okay. So fight is the more obvious one, right? That's somebody getting maybe aggressive in their words, aggressive in their physical self, maybe being really confrontational, um, maybe really combative. Um, I always say that that fight response, it's a very um, difficult response for people to deal with who are trying to help this person. But if you think of it coming from a place of hurt and fear, um, it doesn't seem as difficult to deal with, right? It doesn't seem as overwhelming. So that's fight. Flight uh, also seems pretty obvious. That's like running away. A lot of our foster adoptive kids have a tendency to do that. And when I worked in the school system that I spent a lot of times uh, with my baby, who were fleeing from the classroom, fleeing from the school. So uh, kids can flee in a physical way, but they can also be sitting in their classroom and just space out right? And like really not be present and kind of like daydreaming. That's a different type of flight. Um, I used to talk to educators all the time when I worked in the school system that a lot of our kids who have been through tough stuff, the way that they would flee is just by flipping up their hoodie, (laughs) right? They're like, I just need a moment. I'm overstimulated. Give me some space. But of course, putting up your hoodie in school is something that, you know, a lot of kids get in trouble for. So we had to have discussions around that all the time with educators like, hey, this kid's been through some tough stuff. They may need a moment. You know, can you make an exception for this kid? Because they've been through some tough stuff. So that's fight, flight, freeze, right? It's just shutting down. So that's looking depressed, um, lethargic, also kind of checking out. Also for individuals who have had complex trauma dissociation, um, a lot of times clinically, when we talk about dissociation, people like just perceive that this person's like not interacting with you at all. And that's not true. People can dissociate in minor ways throughout the day um, and not really be interacting with people. So then we have the fawn response, which is one of the newer ones. Fawn usually happens uh, when your family of origin is physically or emotionally abusive and you've had to learn to be an extreme people pleaser so that you don't aggravate the adults in your life. And so quite often these individuals will just go along with the crowd. They'll do anything that anybody tells them, even if they know that it's not right, uh, because they don't want to be noticed. Okay. And then there is flock. Um, Flock is a stress response that uh, we feel safer with groups of people. So when we are activated, when we are overwhelmed, we tend to group together in groups. That's human behavior. Um, But for people who have been through a lot of tough stuff, that flocking kind of behavior sometimes can lead to um, being present in groups maybe that are harmful. So sometimes we think of flocking behavior like gang behavior or something like that. Um, So so really, those are the five main ways that we see, you know, uh, somebody who's being activated, um, you know, acting or behaving. But it's important to note that there's a lot of other symptoms of trauma that are not on that list, right? Because it's an individualized experience. It also affects your brain, especially when trauma happens at a young age. It's important to note that the thinking part of your brain doesn't fully develop till you're 25 years old. And if you've been in a lot of traumatic situations, um, your prefrontal cortex, your thinking brain is significantly impacted as far as how it's wired up. 
can't tell you how many times I've had a parent say like, gosh, we went to therapy with my foster adopted kid when they were, you know, in elementary school, we made a lot of progress. We were doing really, really well. We hit 13 or 14 and everything falls apart. And then they'll say it's hormones. And I'm like, well, maybe it's hormones a little, (laughs) but a lot of that is because the brain is reorganizing itself uh, from the ages of like 12, 13 to 15. Um, And so that's why we see a lot of those past traumas creep back up. So what can this look like? Decca had a few examples. Difficulty with long-term planning and cause and effect thinking. Struggling to express emotions with words and regulate behavior. And the inability to put yourself in someone else's shoes. All those remnants of what they went through when they were young are following them around every single day making it very difficult for them sometimes to um, engage in society in the way that other people do. While trauma can happen to anyone at any age, anywhere, it is important to note that youth in foster care have higher rates of trauma than their peers. Studies estimate that approximately 90% of children in foster care have experienced a traumatic event, with nearly half reporting exposure to four or more traumatic events. Here's Tiffany. Every child that we encounter in the foster care system has experienced some kind of trauma or disrupted attachment. And then, of course, the longer that they stay um, in unhealthy patterns in their home, um, the more trauma and attachment needs that you're going to see come out. Decca says trauma is also more prevalent in places that lack resources that see a lot of violence, that are marginalized. Individuals in communities um, where maybe they are lower socioeconomic brackets, um, in communities where there is a lot of community violence, where a lot of the community members are kind of living on eggshells a lot of the time, right? They don't have a response or they don't have an opportunity for their nervous system to calm down. And what I mean by that is if you're living in a state of fear quite often, and you've also had a lot of tough stuff on your own, you're like living right on the cusp a lot of times of going into fight, flight, freeze, block, or fawn. So you tip over that into those responses very, very quickly sometimes. This gives me a chance to step a bit outside of our current discussion and expand on the correlation between violence and poverty in communities and trauma. Christopher Roberts is the Youth and Gang Violence Prevention Coordinator for the city of Roanoke. He is well aware of this correlation and also well-versed in these topics. When Adeka was talking about the environment and the stresses it produces on the young people who live in those environments, I think it's absolutely paramount that we look at that. I mean, because now you have to be able to parent your child through these things and having those uncomfortable conversations. But the skill sets are not there. Um, social pressures to survive, to maintain, to maintain a household. The mother's working so many odd hours a day. It's a broken family. There's not two parents in the home or there's not another positive adult in that young person's life. Just imprints more trauma, um, builds more gaps. Um, and then those gaps lead people down challenging roads because you don't have information. You don't have information, you don't have guidance, you don't have people you can pour into that can pour back into you and give you guidance through these social environments. 
As we talk about correlation, we can also talk about cycles, the way that trauma moves through a family for generations. Christopher says that is very visible in these underserved communities that lack needed supports. It takes a lot of work and time to break those cycles. We have a two to three generational approach, meaning that we require whoever is the guardian over this young person that we're serving to participate in services as well, to address exactly what we're talking about. What happened to you, where your challenges are, where your challenges are, and let's see if we can help mitigate your challenges. Because if we do not heal the guardian or the adult that's in that young person's life, the environment's not going to change. When we're talking about generational, breaking generational curses, um, you have to do the work, you have to plant the seed, you have to make sure it grows, and you got to cultivate your work on a daily basis to make sure you don't just get into a rhythm of producing the same curses that you're trying to break from your family. If trauma is here and it's prevalent and it's affecting bodies, brains, behaviors, and communities, what do we do? How do we address it? Here's Decca's advice for foster and adoptive parents, but her suggestions can apply to anyone parenting or providing care to someone who has experienced trauma. So the two things that I always tell foster and adoptive parents is one, you need to deal with the trauma that you've been through. First and foremost, if you have not dealt with that as an adult and as a parent, you are going to be activated and triggered by a lot of stuff that happens with your kids. The second thing is, is that you really have to educate yourself as much as you can. Go to as many trainings, you know, on trauma-informed parenting, um, on connected kind of parenting, on brain-based parenting, so that you understand what's happening in your child's brain and in their body. Another point that goes along with that is not taking things personally. I say that in a very simple way, but I know it is not simple in any way, shape, or form especially for kids who have been through tough things, it can feel like a lot of their behavior is really targeted towards you as their parent. But what I always tell parents is this is about your child's hurt. This is about their fear. That is what is underlying all these behaviors that you see. Tiffany's advice for caregivers? The biggest is support, developing or finding a support network. And also just expectations of where the child should be at in their healing journey. There's a lot of factors that go into that. Um, You know, biological age does not correspond with developmental age. And you have to key into, you know, meeting the child where they are developmentally to determine how to best support them in their healing journey. In Christopher's experience with the youth and families he works with, who are inside and outside the child welfare system, Addressing the lack of trust is the first step. It's not palatable to people in the community right now when you start off talking about, hey, parenting classes. Hey, let's improve your parenting skills. That just sounds taboo, you know, as opposed to having a general, let's have a general conversation on what are some of the challenges you're having raising your child? You know, um, having that trauma-informed type of conversation as to, Instead of what's wrong, what happened to you? You know, giving them the authority and power back. We're not coming in your home giving you something that we think you're creating this plan and we're transitioning from objective one to two to three when you're ready. 
you know, and then build up those resiliency factors in and of itself to build up a more therapeutic conversation that invites the person you're talking with into the conversation as a participant and not as a patient. We know this all may be easier said than done. Across the nation, inside and outside the child welfare system, there are barriers to getting help, to accessing treatment. Here are just a few. A lack of services and professionals in your area. According to the Health Resources and Services Administration, 149 million Americans, nearly half the U.S. population, live in federally designated mental health professional shortage areas. Another one, financial barriers, like a lack of insurance coverage. Then there's the social stigma of seeking treatment, followed by transportation issues and scheduling conflicts, and racial limitations. According to research from the American Psychological Association and the Bureau of Labor Statistics, 84% of psychologists, 67% of social workers, and 88% of mental health counselors are white. If you compare these numbers to census numbers, you can see the discrepancy. The 2020 U.S. Census showed that the country is becoming more diverse. People of color now comprise more than 40% of the population. And while the majority of Virginia's population is white, the state continues to become more racially and ethnically diverse, mirroring those national trends. Why are these numbers important? Because people are less likely to seek help with someone they believe is unable to understand or empathize with their cultural differences and experiences. So there is a need to make trauma and mental health services more available, more accessible, more affordable, and more equitable. There is also a need for more trauma-informed communities. What does that mean? Decca? When we're looking at trauma-informed care, essentially what we're doing is we are wanting to educate as many individuals as possible in our community, whether they are just community members, uh, leaders in organizations, executive directors, individuals in healthcare and law enforcement, individuals in education, um, about what uh, trauma um, does to an individual's brain, to their body, um, how it impacts them developmentally, um, how it can show up in their behaviors. And then after we educate people about trauma, uh, we really want to move them towards what we call trauma-responsive care. And what trauma-responsive care is that you are looking as an organization or um, a government entity or as a school system at your policies and procedures and ways of operating that may be re-traumatizing to people who have been through tough things. Unfortunately, we know that multiple organizations uh, have policies and procedures and ways of being that can be very traumatizing to people who have been through tough things. Um, And so what we do with trauma-informed care is we educate them um, on those policies, procedures, ways of being that may be traumatizing, and um, try to help them move towards that more trauma-responsive paradigm uh, where they are approaching everybody as if they might have trauma and responding appropriately. Christopher? Everything starts with 
an honest and transparent conversation, meaning that agencies, local government, we have to reveal our scars back to the community and say, you know what? We had some well-intended policies that have been in place for a long time, and we believe they're causing more harm than good, and we're willing to reevaluate that. Would you be willing to be on that journey with us? You know, and I think the community will respond by being more trustworthy, being more open, being more receptive to getting the treatment and services they need to move their family past or out of the challenging circumstances that they're currently in, and to offer that help to friends and family. Everyone I've spoken with for this episode agrees. Understanding and acknowledging trauma and its impact on people in general and more specifically on our most vulnerable youth, can improve our communities. Imagine if every child who came from a hard place carrying trauma had a safe, loving home and an accessible, consistent circle of support. In the next episode of Unsettled from Hard Places, we discuss attachment and the way connection can impact lives. Unsettled from Hard Places is a multi-part podcast from DePaul Community Resources, an agency invested in opening doors to hope and belonging to all people by providing services, educating our communities, and advocating for meaningful and systemic change. The podcast is hosted and produced by me, Allison Wickline Burns. Thank you to our sponsors, Marsh McLennan, Segra, and Wilbank Smith and Thomas. Please visit depaulcr.org slash unsettled podcast for more content and to learn how you can get involved. Thank you for listening. Thank you.